Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. In this episode, we are focusing on the Middle East, as we do at least every other season, if not more often. So many moving parts, so many layers of uncertainty, so many stress lines that no pundit, no policymaker, and no U.S. president, for that matter, has really ever been able to figure it all out, which is what makes strategic questions about this region, we think, so very debatable. So that's what we did. We debated them. Our theme for the debate you're about to hear is unresolved shifting power in the Middle East. And our use of the word unresolved is very deliberate. It's how we signal that we think there is so much to dig into in the topic, so many cross currents, that over the course of this program, we actually argued through three separate resolutions, one after the other, and we brought five debaters to the stage, deliberately an odd number, each of them flying solo, each taking a position of yes or no on these resolutions. Before the debate began, our live audience at the Symphony Space Theater in New York City voted on all three motions, and at the end, you'll find out which arguments they found most persuasive. The relationships between Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, and the U.S. are changing every day. This debate was recorded on September 12, 2019. Let's meet our debaters. First, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Roel Mark Garrick. Well, it's great to have you here. You are a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. You're a former CIA case officer, an experienced Intelligence Squared debater. You have now four debates under your belt with us. Well, it's great to have you back again tonight. My pleasure. Next to Royal at the debating table, please welcome Bernard Haeckel. Hi, Bernard. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are a professor of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton. You're a Guggenheim Fellow, and you're the co-editor of the book Saudi Arabia in Transition, Insights on Social, Political, Economic, and Religious Change. Bernard, thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Next, Michael Duran. Michael, you are a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, served in the Bush administration as senior director on the National Security Council, among other positions. Uh, you're also an experienced Intelligence Squared U.S. debater. This is your third time on our debate stage, and we can't wait to see what you have in store for us tonight. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next in the lineup, Barbara Slavin. Barbara, you're director of the Future of Iran Initiative and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. You're an author and a columnist and expert on Iranian affairs. You and I were journalists together in 1986 in Libya as American bombs fell on the city, which was a very, very harrowing experience. I am glad that we are both here tonight. Barbara, Me it's too. a pleasure to have you. Good to be here. And next in line, Brett McGurk. Brett, you're uh, currently a distinguished lecturer at Stanford. Previously, you served senior positions in the Bush and the Obama and the Trump administrations, including a special presidential envoy for the global coalition to defeat ISIS under Presidents Obama and Trump. Brett, it's great to have you on our stage. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Brett. And thanks to all of our debaters. I just want to remind you again how this is going to unfold. We're going to be working through three different resolutions, one at a time. For each of these resolutions, at the moment that I announce it and invite a debater to speak on it, that debater will declare yes or no to the statement. So let's get to the debate. The first of our three resolutions deals with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has some tough critics here in the U.S., including among members of Congress from both parties, but a more forgiving perspective uh, comes from President Trump himself, who appears more likely to excuse than to criticize some of the excesses of the kingdom, and who told his controversial prince, Mohammed bin Salman, according to the New York Times, you're doing a terrific job. So given that, our first resolution is this. Trump is right on Saudi Arabia. Our first speaker on this resolution will be Michael Duran. The resolution, Trump is right on Saudi Arabia. Michael, how do you declare yes or no? Yes, the president is right on Saudi Arabia because he understands that we've had two presidential elections that have elected candidates who said 
the United States is going to pull back from the Middle East. First, that was Barack Obama, and then that was, uh, that was Donald Trump. Um, he understands that the American public is not willing to have uh, another George W. Bush-style intervention in the Middle East. And yet he also knows, as I think does our entire national security elite, that we can't just leave the Middle East and leave it to its own devices. That's the lesson of the Obama administration's foreign policy. President Obama tried to pull back. The last thing he wanted to do was to go back in Iraq and to get involved in Syria, but he had to because we have to have order in the Middle East. And if the United States is going to make order in the Middle East and it's not going to do it itself, then it has to have friends and it has to work with allies. And the number of allies who can work to create a regional order is actually very small. The number of candidates who can project power beyond their borders. There are only three, and they are Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. That's it. If we're not going to do it ourselves, we have to do it with friends. There's no other possibility. We move on to our next debater on the same question. Trump is right on Saudi Arabia. Barbara Slavin, how do you declare, yes or no? No. The Trump administration has squandered its leverage in the Middle East by blindly supporting the Saudi monarchy, and in particular, its reckless uh, and cruel crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. There was no good reason for Trump to go to Saudi Arabia as his first foreign trip. He could have gone to a democratic ally of the United States. His bet appeared to be that the Saudis would be so bowled over by this presidential attention that they would forge an overt alliance with Israel and spend billions more dollars on U.S. weaponry. While the Saudis have drawn somewhat closer to the Israelis, they uh, have not supported Trump's unilateral moves like uh, moving our embassy to Jerusalem, and they haven't bought much additional U.S. hardware. Meanwhile, Mohammed bin Salman, who's known as MBS, has made a series of disastrous decisions, including boycotting Qatar, holding the Prime Minister of Lebanon and nearly 400 Saudi businessmen hostage, waging a brutal war in Yemen, and last but very much not least, murdering the journalist Jamal Khashoggi uh, a year ago. Had the US taken a different tack, we would have had much more leverage with the Saudis, and it's possible that MBS would not have become crown prince. Brett McGurk, you're next in line on the resolution Trump is right on Saudi Arabia. Are you yes or no? I'm a no, John. Uh, take Trump out of the question. We're here on the Upper West Side. I can imagine what uh, most of the audience thinks. But take Trump out of the question. What do we want from Saudi Arabia? We want a moderate Saudi Arabia. We want a successful Saudi Arabia. We want a Saudi Arabia that is working for stability in the region. Trump has given Saudi Arabia unconditional love. And there should be no unconditional love in the Middle East. We had no ambassador for two years. We had no engagement from the Secretary of State because Trump went around the Secretary of State. And look at the results. Saudi Arabia today is weaker, more isolated in the region and in Washington, and facing increasing problems. On Trump's watch, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, six countries in the Gulf, has split because the Saudis have led a boycott of Qatar. That has weakened our ability to deal with problems in the region and Iran. Saudi Arabia on Trump's watch has escalated the war in Yemen, and we've basically abandoned diplomacy in Yemen to try to de-escalate that humanitarian catastrophe. On Trump's watch, bipartisan majorities in Congress, which are rare these days, have rebuked Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is now becoming a partisan issue in Washington, which is not good for us and not good for Saudi Arabia. Defense spending in Saudi Arabia, they spend 11% of their GDP on defense. They spend more than Russia on defense, and yet they are in desperate need of domestic reforms because they have an economic crisis, and we are not working with them at all on these critical questions. So I speak as a friend of Saudi Arabia, and the record, I think, speaks for itself. Trump has not been good for Saudi Arabia. Rule Mark Eric, Trump is right on Saudi Arabia, yes or no? No. I mean, I have to say, this is an odd occasion. I'm in agreement with Barbara Slavin, sort of. Uh, <laughs> the foundation for defensive democracy, my you, God. Um, I mean, I'm going to define this fairly <laughs> narrowly. Uh, I, if you look at Saudi Arabia, is it really an ally of the United States in the sense that can it uh, allow the United States to diminish its footprint in the region? And can it help build an alliance against the Islamic Republic of Iran? 
which is the most convulsive and lethal force in the region? And I think the answer there has to be no. I mean, the, the Saudis are incapable of using ground troops in any meaningful sense. Uh, in Syria, the Iranians, the Russians, and the Assad regime have slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Sunnis, and the Saudis were able to do nothing. Saudi Air Force has some power, but let's be honest, if the Americans aren't there lending a hand, uh, they can't really do anything. You don't trust them. I think that has come clear in the Yemen war. There's a good reason for the Saudis to be fighting in Yemen. However, I would disagree in the way that they have done it. I don't think it's been terribly productive. Uh, and again, it's largely because the MBS in particular goes his own way and he's not reliable. Trump is right on Saudi Arabia. Bernard Haeckel, are you yes or no? I mean, yes, I'm with Michael on this one. I think that Trump has basically seen the, the lie of the land in the Middle East, and he's seen in Saudi Arabia a regime that is willing to do certain things that are profoundly in America's interests. The first of which is the complete cessation of all funding to Islamists and to Muslim political radicals throughout not just the region, but the entire world. Saudi Arabia now is in a transition away from Islam being a fundamental core element of its identity towards a country that is more like a normal country where nationalism is central to the identity of the country. The second thing that this regime is doing, it is trying to change and modernize its society by clamping down on reactionary Islamists domestically. It has given greater rights to women, something that was thought impossible before the present regime in Saudi Arabia. Women are now in the public arena, they're in the workforce, they're driving, and this seems to me to be a momentum that cannot be stopped. So on a number of issues, Trump has been right to support this regime. Now, this regime has also made terrible blunders in Saudi Arabia. The killing of Jamal is only one. The war in Yemen is the other. But you can't, you know, pick and choose your allies, and we are stuck with Saudi Arabia, and we want it to move in the right direction. Thank you, Bernard Haeckel. And that concludes the opening round. And now we have a more freewheeling conversation, but what we have are on the resolution, Trump is right on Saudi Arabia, three no's and two yeses. The no's describe Trump's uh, position on Saudi Arabia as unconditional love and as blind support, as reckless and naive. Uh, they're basically arguing that uh, Saudi Arabia does more harm than good for U.S. interests, that it's an unreliable ally, a weaker ally than before, and cozying up is not bringing about uh, an improvement uh, of the position of U.S. interests. The two debaters on the other side make a very strong argument. Number one, we need the ally. Saudi Arabia has been an ally. Saudi Arabia will do things that uh, we want Saudi Arabia to do. Some of them might not be very pleasant, but we want them to do it. And Saudi Arabia is changing, becoming less perhaps offensive culturally and politically than it has been in the past. More on our first resolution, Trump is right on Saudi Arabia, plus two more resolutions when we come back. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. A reminder of where we are, we are in the middle of our first resolution in tonight's debate, Trump is right on Saudi Arabia. Let's get back to it. I want to start with you, Barbara Slavin, the position that your argument, some of your now at this point opponents are taking, that at bottom Saudi Arabia does deliver, that if we need uh, an ally out there to do stuff, give us places to base our planes, for example, uh, spend money in areas we want it spent, that Saudi Arabia does it and that nobody else is going to do it and that that's the, the key of the argument for why it's a good thing to keep Saudi Arabia in our corner. Yeah, well, look, I'm not arguing that we should cut relations with Saudi Arabia. I just think we need more balance in our relations with various countries in the region. I mean, we have the United Arab Emirates. We have Qatar. We have our biggest air base in Qatar. So we don't really need Saudi Arabia. I support the idea that the Saudis are trying to reform, but you know they've got most of the advocates of reform in prison, including a number of women, who you know wanted the right to drive, and uh, so they have the right to drive. But instead, these women are in jail. Why does that matter to U.S. interests? Because I think MBS has shown that he has terrible judgment, that he's reckless and cruel. We have to be very, very careful and not put all our eggs in his basket. Michael Duran. Look, there are realities of power in the world, and there's a realities of power in the Middle East. We are not going to remake this region into our own image. We have interests, we have to focus on those interests, and we have to think about who are the most influential actors that can help us. The problem we have in the region now is the rise of Iran. 
Iran is spreading its influence all over the region through proxies. It's delivering to them precision weapons. They're threatening all of our allies, and especially Israel. And Saudi Arabia sees the region exactly as Israel does. And it's using its resources and its influence, which is considerable, in oil markets, in Europe, uh, within, in Washington uh, even, to project a picture of the region and our interests and their interests that is identical to Israel's interests. Barbara wants I'm, to jump I, I'm sorry, but... You know, the war in Yemen has been a gift to Iran. Every stupid thing MBS does is a gift to Iran. He is not a reliable ally for Brett the United McGirt. States. Look, I've worked with MBS, and he actually is someone who uh, you can reason with. If you simply give him unconditional support, as Trump has done, again, no ambassador in Riyadh. I worked for two years in the, in the Trump administration. There's no ambassador there for two years. We had no very senior level engagement because everything was going around. Uh, the entire national security team actually knows something about the region. But I keep hearing Trump sees this, he sees this. Trump doesn't see anything. There's no strategy behind this. Trump, <laughs> Trump is being described, he's being described as a close friend of Saudi Arabia. This is a man who has said repeatedly that King Salman, the custodian of the two holiest mosques of Islam, a very important figure, would be gone in two weeks without our military support. That's what Trump says to him. He embarrasses them. He is not benefiting Saudi Arabia. And I speak again as a friend of Saudi Arabia. I agree with the moderate reforms. That has to happen. We're not helping. We're making it worse. Bernard Hickel. There are a couple of assumptions that have been made here. One is that somehow if Trump wouldn't support the regime, then someone else could have come into power. MBSs could, could have been replaced by the United States. I think that's hogwash. We cannot interfere in the internal workings of another country like Saudi Arabia. It's a very opaque place, and the royal family has total dominance and control over the society. Now, if we want to start meddling there in a way like I, sus I suspect uh, Barbara would like us to do, we could have a civil war in that country. Yeah, a civil war in a country that produces over 10 million barrels of oil a, a day. A country that when we tell it, you need to produce more because there's been a cutoff or shutoff of oil either in Libya or Venezuela or wherever, they will do it. They are an ally of the United States. They're not perfect, far from it. They have lots of warts, and we should put pressure on them to fix those warts. But to pressurize them to behave in exactly the way that we want them to behave is not going to work. So just bouncing off of what Bernard was saying, that we shouldn't meddle, can't meddle, are you actually arguing in your no position for wanting to change and shape what Saudi Arabia is? Not Really, I mean, I think the I think the primary thing you always have to be concerned with uh, Middle Eastern societies, particularly a traditional one like Saudi Arabia going into transition, is its fragility. Uh, so I think the primary American objective with Saudi Arabia is do less. We should want them to do less uh, outside of Saudi Arabia, and we should probably want them to do less inside of Saudi Arabia. I'm not a terribly big fan of the argument that says. Uh, we want authoritarian leaders to coerce their societies into progress. I think modern Middle Eastern history tells you just the opposite. Mm -hmm. One point on the crown prince. Sure. Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, developed a relationship with MBS before he was crown prince, and he pushed him and pushed him. And I'm sure that had some influence in Riyadh, because there were others who could have been named crown prince, if not for the, the mucking around of the Trump administration and Trump's son-in-law. I don't agree with that. Since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, this is be, everyone in America knows his name. We've got in China. They don't pronounce it we've correctly. Got it, we've got in China. We've got in China a million people in concentration camps. There hasn't been as much attention on that as there's been on Jamal Khashoggi. Why? It's not because of Saudi Arabia. It's not because of MBS. It's because of the relationship between Jared Kushner and MBS. It's an indirect way of going after Trump. We have become an incredibly parochial country where our, our domestic debate, we, we now talk about foreign policy to score points in our domestic debate. This is not the way, this is not the way to run a good foreign policy. One, one last point, okay, quickly, sure. very Go quickly. Yeah. The Yemen war, we had a great deal with Saudi Arabia for many, many years, 75 years. They bought our arms and they didn't use them. Right? And then the deal was we took care of the region around. And under Barack Obama, we said to them, we don't do that anymore. The Iranians are moving into Yemen. Your problem, not ours. Brett, you talked about unconditional love is problematic. I don't mean this to be sarcastic, but what level of love should we be showing for Saudi Arabia to what end?
Saudi Arabia is a critical ally of ours. We have to engage with them. Um, but what happened in the first years of the Trump administration was just a total green light, and you saw all sorts of reckless behavior, which has damaged our interests. Our allies in the region now are divided. The UAE, a critical ally of ours, is leaving Yemen. Donald Trump, you might think, wants to be more present in the Middle East to correct for some of the mistakes of the Obama administration, but he says publicly, why are our ships there? What are we doing there? There is no confidence in the region that, that Donald Trump wants to be engaged in the region. So, so, the, so the solution is what? The solution is to have, I mean, we finally have a strong ambassador in Saudi Arabia, you're engaged. In order to be telling him the Saudis what to do? Yes, you have to, you have to be regularly engaged and say this, if you do this, that would be very bad. Well. I mean, the primary problem is that President Trump is continuing the policy of President Obama, and that is uh, the disengagement of the United States from the Middle East, the retreat of the United States from the Middle East. When the United States retreats from the Middle East, guess what? Other people are going to go in the vacuum, in this case, MBS, and MBS simply can't handle it. Saudi Arabia as a society can't handle it. So you want more of America, less of Saudi Arabia. Thank you. That concludes our debate on resolution number one, Trump is right on Saudi Arabia. Our second resolution is going to be looking at Iran and particularly the uh, aftermath of the Iran nuclear deal being first agreed to and then called off. The Iran nuclear deal, officially called the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was meant to slow down Iran's development of nuclear weapons. It was negotiated and agreed to by the Obama administration. It was called off by the Trump administration. Now Iran is beginning to cross some of the boundaries that that deal set in place. The upshot of all of this, that's what we're gonna be going after with this next resolution. The world is safer without the JCPOA, without the Iran deal. Our first speaker on this resolution will be Raul Mark Garrett on the resolution. The world is safer without the JCPOA. Are you yes or no? Yes. Okay. What we do know, I think, is the general rule. It's not a good idea for American foreign policy to be built on self-deception. Uh, it should not be built on blackmail. That's essentially what the Iranians were doing. They were saying, if you do not do, if they don't publicly do certain things with the nuclear program clandestinely, they can do whatever they want because the system of verification that deal is so awful uh, that we'll give you billions of dollars in return. I also think appeasement isn't a terribly good uh, start for American foreign policy, and that's essentially what we're doing. We're giving them billions and billions of dollars, and they can use it any way they wish. And the way, one of the ways they use it is by expanding their influence in the Middle East, by engaging in mass slaughter uh, in Syria, and I think we should always dwell on that, the Iranian role. They've essentially run much of the Syrian armed forces. They have been the masters on the ground. I think it's just a very unwise policy to deceive yourselves and thinking that down the road it's going to get better. We should approach this realistically. Now, we do not know what Donald Trump is going to do. No one does, including him. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Eric. The resolution, the world is safer without the JCPOA. Bernard Haeckel, how do you declare? I would say it is uh, absolutely safer. And that is because Iran took advantage of this deal to build up its ballistic missile capability, to uh, it used the money that was given to it by the United States to spend not on its own population, but on proxy fighters and militiamen who fought in, in Syria in the Civil War. They built better drones, better guidance systems for their missiles and their drones, which we're, we're now seeing being deployed in Yemen. Um, the Iranians basically took advantage of this deal and uh, said, you know, well, we'll halt this nuclear stuff, which they can always restart. And in, in return, we gave them a pass on all the other stuff that they were doing, which made the region much more dangerous. The United States believed certain elites in the United States, you'll hear this view in a minute, uh, <laughs> felt, felt that you, we could move within the different circles of power in Iran, we could kind of push the moderates against the, against the more extremists and that the deal would help the moderates. This is all hogwash. Iran is a theocracy, it's run by one man, and that man is no moderate. Thank you, Bernard Haeckel. <laughs> Michael Duran on the resolution, the world is safer without the JCPOA. Are you yes or no? Yes, I'm, uh, I'm with my colleagues here. It was a massive self-deception. One of the things that we know now from the atomic archive, which the Israelis spirited out of Tehran, is that we didn't understand how far along Iran was in terms of building 
a nuclear weapons program. And we also didn't realize that they were continuing a clandestine program. What they did back in 2003 when the United States went into Iraq, they were afraid that, uh, that uh, George W. Bush might attack them, uh, and their, uh, some of their program had been discovered and was being investigated by the International Atomic Energy Association. And so what they did is they started to emphasize the parts of the program that could be plausibly explained as part of a civil nuclear program while putting deeper underground the hidden parts. And when I say underground, I mean actually underground, like the Fordo missile, the, the Fordo um, uh, site, which was built solely to enrich uranium to build an, uh, a nuclear weapon. And under the JCPOA, they have kept Fordo. So what we have done is given an international cover for them to continue their covert program. Thank you. On the resolution, once again, the world is safer without the JCPOA. Barbara Slavin, do you declare yes or no? The world is definitely not safer. You notice that these gentlemen are all referring to missiles and other issues. The deal was supposed to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon for at least 15 years by preventing Iran from having sufficient material to make a nuclear weapon. It provided for the most intrusive inspection system ever negotiated, and Iran was in full compliance with this agreement when President Trump withdrew. Since he did that, the Middle East has become a much more dangerous place than it was before. The Iranians were patient for a year. They did nothing. They took no steps. But after a year, and after the Trump administration imposed a total embargo on the sale of Iranian oil, all of a sudden there were sabotage incidents in the Persian Gulf, and the Iranians have begun to exceed some of the limits set in the JCPOA. We were safer with the deal. We could have built on it. Now we have nothing. Thank you, Barbara Slavin. Brett McGurk, on the resolution, the world is safer without the JCPOA. Are you yes or no? I'm also a no. I just think, look at the facts. On June 21st, uh, just a couple months ago, uh, President Trump tweeted that he was cocked and loaded to bomb three strikes in Iran, but then 10 minutes before the strike, he said he stopped it, because he learned at the last minute he might kill 150 Iranians. So just think about that. We are on the verge of a new military conflict. No thought to the consequences, no planning for the consequences. Iran would have reacted. How would we have reacted? And up the escalatory ladder, it would have gone. And how did we get to that point? Trump pulled out of this deal without any consideration of what would happen or what would come next. I will stipulate Iran is a terrible, terrible uh, country under the leader of uh, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei. Iran has killed colleagues of mine. Iran is an enemy of the United States of America. But is the world safer without the deal? The answer is no. Since Trump left the deal with no plan, Iranian behavior in the region has gotten worse, even according to the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. It has dramatically strengthened its ties with Russia and China, our two great power competitors. And if we get into an ill-conceived war with Iran, we will lose the century to China. Thank you, Brett McGurk. So on the resolution, the world is safer without the JCPOA. We have three yeses and we have two no's. I want to take the point that both Barbara Slavin and uh, Brett McGurk, who are the two no's on this, to Raul Mark Garrett, who are basically saying Iran's behavior since the U.S. pulled out of the deal has gotten worse. The world is not safer. The world is less safe at the hands of Iran's activities. Uh, I'm not sure how you can argue that. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Iran's behavior before they pulled out of the JCPO was abominable, it was atrocious, it was hideous. Uh, it was during Obama's administration that uh, the Iranians went wild uh, in Syria, and President Obama did nothing. Uh, part of the reason why he did nothing, I think, because he was gunning for this nuclear deal and he was gunning for the illusion of having some diplomatic breakthrough with the Islamic Republic. And I just have to get back to this. We don't know what the Iranians are doing clandestinely. The JCPOA is like Swiss cheese. The notion that we have an idea of what they're doing clandestinely was, I think, disproved uh, by what happened immediately after the deal was sealed. And that is, we went back into Parchin and this sort of robot-controlled, Iranian-controlled inspection. And what did we find? We found two more particles of uranium. What did the IEA do? Nothing. Let me bring Barbara in. Uranium, it, particles like that can, as we know, they have a, an enormous half-life. How do you know that this didn't 
let's date go, to the let's to go find out. previous work, which was stopped I, in 2003. I agree with you, Barbara. Let's go find out. Let's go back in there and inspect. Well, how are we supposed to do that if this deal is collapsing? And what are the, what's the, the IAEA going to do if we have no agreement? The Europeans can call for that anytime they want. I'm sorry. We've undermined the deal. Michael We've Duran, undermined our ability to Michael find Duran, out what's going on. I want to point on. out that you actually argued this, this uh, treaty in a previous debate with us. And uh, I won. <laughs> <laughs> that night you won. Decisively. No. Let's yeah. not get ahead of our skis here. Okay, go ahead. I think what, what Ruel is saying is that the IAEA is, is not going in and inspecting because the powers, the JCPOA powers, have sent a very clear message to it that they don't want them to go in and inspect sites, because they know that if they go to a military site and demand inspection, as they have the right to under the JCPOA, the Iranians will say, get stuffed, and that will end the JCPOA. So there's this, there's this dance going on, this self-delusion, where the IAEA is not asking questions that it knows it's going to get a bad answer to. Brett McGurk, I mean, there's a little bit of a note here that Iran is dangerous anyway, with or without nuclear weapons, that it has, and, and this came out, it has, uh, uh, it has money, it has influence, it has bedfellows in dangerous and risky places. How does that factor come into this whole conversation about the world is safer or not without the deal? Look, they have a nuclear program. We gave them this Particles for Peace program that Eisenhower started. We actually started their nuclear program. I'm not ideological about this. I'm very practical. How do you deal with the nuclear program? There are two ways. Diplomacy through a deal is not going to be perfect. We want to buy as much time as you can, or a military strike. And all assessments of a military strike, as reported in the New York Times, are not disclosing anything. You're going to set the program back by one or two years. And then what? So, I mean, the, the question is, do you favor a military strike to set back the program one or two years, or do you favor very imperfect diplomacy to buy time? You hear a lot about the fact that since, since uh, sanctions came back on Iran, they have a lot less money. Here's the truth. They spend very little money on these proxy groups. You are not going to sanction your way to better Iranian behavior. We are increasingly isolated by the way Trump has gotten out of this deal, and I do not believe it's working in our interest. Brett McGurk. That's it for our second resolution of the program. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared US. We'll have our final resolution on the Middle East when we come back. And welcome back to our debate tonight. We have five panelists debating a series of resolutions under the theme, Unresolved Shifting Power in the Middle East. We are two-thirds of the way through uh, our list of resolutions. Our third topic zooms in on a nation that is locked into the middle of everything, and that is Turkey. Turkey, which sits between Asia and Europe. Turkey, which sits between Russia and the Arab world. But more recently, a Turkey which is actually shifting somewhat between democracy and autocracy. Turkey has been a member of the NATO alliance for most of the time most of us have been alive. Given recent trends, however, there are questions being raised about that last fact, which we are framing as a resolution this way. Turkey is an asset to NATO. On that resolution, our first speaker will be Bernard Haeckel. Bernard Haeckel, on that resolution, Turkey is an asset to NATO. Are you yes or no? I'm a yes. I mean, Turkey is a hugely important country. It's one of the most important countries in, in the Middle East. Turkey has an absolutely massive population, a very strong military, has been a stalwart ally of the West, for many, many decades, and it is tragic to see it move away uh, from the Western alliance. And you have to keep in mind that this is also a period when the Russians are coming into, back into the Middle East, and there are uh, relations between the Turks and the Russians which are detrimental to Western interests, uh, purchasing of the S-400 uh, missiles. And so this is a very bad uh, development. I think that Turkey, one of the reasons that Turkey has moved in the direction that it has away from the, the West has to do with the politics of the Middle East, in particular the question of the Kurds and the cozying up uh, between the Americans and the Kurds. Uh, in the war against ISIS. And I think it's, it's crucial to, to look to Turkey and to tell them that this question of the Kurds does not mean in any way a, a diminution in the alliance or the support that the West and specifically the United States has to give to Turkey. So Turkey is fundamental. It has to remain in NATO. And I hope we, to God, that we, we, we keep it there. Michael Duran, the resolution goes to you. Turkey is an asset to NATO, yes or no? Yes, uh, emphatically yes. 
And I want to tell you that there's a story that hasn't been told in the United States, which is about the way that we abandoned our ally, Turkey. I mean, I think people are very familiar with, this, with all of the story about how Erdogan has turned away from the West. But one of the problems with Erdogan is, uh, and, and I would say actually Turkey in general, this is a nation that does not have a public relations gene. Uh, we went into Syria through the YPG, which is the Syrian arm of the PKK. Those are the separatist uh, Kurds in Turkey who want to carve out a Kurdistan from Turkey. They're an extremist terrorist organization recognized by the United States as a, as a terrorist organization. This is the equivalent of the United States going in to say Jordan and building up Hamas. And when the Israelis say, you know, what you're doing there next, right next to, to our country, building up this organization that wants to tear my country apart is not good for us, we said, sit down and shut up. And when there was a coup attempt against Erdogan, orchestrated by Gulen, who sits in Pennsylvania, and Erdogan said, hey, can you extradite that guy? We said, sit down and shut up. So at a certain point, he said, you know what? They're actually anti-Turkey. Today, forget about Erdogan, 80% of Turks, according to opinion polls, regard the United States as a hostile power. The floor moves to Barbara Slavin. On the resolution, Turkey is an asset to NATO, are you yes or no? Unbelievably, I agree <laughs> with my colleagues here on this one. I'm changing um, my vote. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe for slightly uh, different reasons. I'll let Brett speak to the, the YPG and the Kurds and all of that. I just think it's important to keep Turkey tethered to the West. And yes, Erdogan has taken it in very uh, undemocratic directions, but we've seen a resurgence of Turkish democracy recently. There were municipal elections, and all the major municipalities, including Istanbul, voted against the government-supported candidates. So I think the last thing we want to do is to move away from Turkey now when Erdogan finally is beginning to look a little bit weaker. The other thing is the neighborhood Turkey is in. I mean, if we, if we push them out of NATO, that just pushes them even more into the laps of the Russians uh, and, and the Iranians, which is certainly not in, in our interest. You know, NATO is not the EU. There have been countries with rather authoritarian regimes in NATO, uh, Spain and Portugal, famously, at the beginning. So we should keep Turkey in, not out, and uh, let's be patient. Let's, let's have some faith in the Turkish people. Brett McGurk, Turkey is an asset to NATO, yes or no? I'm going to say no. Thank not. you. I, Interesting. But, I am not saying we should kick Turkey out of NATO, but the question in the present tense, are they an asset to NATO? And what is NATO? It's a vital transatlantic alliance aimed to protect the security and prosperity of its members. And on that standard, Turkey right now is not an asset to NATO. I'm going to look at the Trump administration's national security strategy. What do we care about? Great power competition, China and Russia, international terrorism, and Iran. On all three measures right now, Turkey is not an asset. On international terrorism, look, I ran the ISIS campaign. 40,000 foreign fighters, jihadis from 110 countries around the world, all came into Syria to fight in that war, and they all came through Turkey. I was in Turkey more than any other country to have them seal their border, and they would not do it. They said they couldn't do it, but the minute the Kurds took parts of the border, it's totally sealed with a wall. So let's just be honest about the record. It is not the fact that we went with the YPG and told, told Turkey to sit in a corner on Iran. Turkey was the biggest sanctions buster backdoor of any country around the world to Iran. Almost $100 billion in a sanctions busting scheme went through Turkey by their own state-owned bank, the general manager of whom was prosecuted here in the Southern District of New York. On Russia, Turkey is buying, the only NATO member buying sophisticated military hardware from Russia. That is a serious problem. NATO is an alliance Fred McGurk, I'm sorry, Russia. your time is up. So the answer I think you're gonna have no. a lot of chance to talk in the next section. Turkey is an asset to NATO. Rule Mark Eric, are you yes or no? Uh, we need your uh, participation. Uh, can, is there any possibility I can do uh, not you yes or no and just do waffle? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very torn here. Uh, one person. Well, let me, for the record, say that you have put up the flag no. No, but I, I wrote waffle. Waffle. So, okay. uh, which is what I want to do. Uh, I, when I lived in Turkey for a number of years, I'm very fond of the Turks, and Istanbul is the greatest city on earth. You know, I, I, I think that Turkey in and of itself remains a potential asset uh, to NATO. It, uh, and I agree uh, uh, with Barbara, I think it should remain, uh, to the extent that we can, tethered 
uh, to the United States and to the West. I think it's an investment that is well worth our while, and the great experiment of Turkey is by far, it's not over yet. With that said, I, I don't have any doubts that Erdogan uh, is a fairly determined Islamist. I am surprised that Michael actually didn't bring up this issue. I think he has a, he has a desire and a dream to take Turkey in a different direction. Uh, that cannot be possibly be good for the United States. Militarily, obviously, Turkey can no longer be brought in with the secrets of NATO. Uh, it has deeply compromised the F-35 program, the new uh, self-fighter uh, program, bomber program, it's an all-purpose aircraft. Uh, you cannot possibly allow that thing to be de deployed in Turkey now. I don't know what they've done with okay. some of the intelligence agreements that we have with Turkey. Yeah. That I, sort of I have to stop record. you because uh, your time is up. I'm stopped now. <laughs> okay, thank <laughs> you very waffled. much. Thank you, that concludes the opening round of our third resolution. On the resolution, Turkey is an asset to NATO. We have three yeses, we have a very, very firm no. And we have a waffle uh, <laughs> uh, disguised as a no. Um, so uh, I think, give, being the firm no, Brett, you're going to have a lot of time talking back to, uh, to your opponents. But right. uh, what, I, what I think I heard was a sort of constant theme which uh, unites you all, actually, is that Turkey has the potential to be a fantastic uh, NATO partner, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not, and it would be better if it were, uh, depending on conditions. What I also heard was a little bit of whose fault is it that this thing is up in the air right now? Brett, could you take that thought on that, uh, I think Michael's argument that uh, the reason Turkey, in your view, is not uh, an asset right now has a lot to do with our treatment of Turkey and that that could be corrected. So first, I'm fairly confident if you look at any public opinion poll in Turkey almost any year, uh, Americans are very unpopular. Before we ever heard of the YPG, and we decided to go to war against ISIS because ISIS was committing genocide and it was controlling 11, 8 million people across Iraq and Syria, you all know about ISIS. We went to Turkey and said, hey, let's fight this together. We want to fly to Vinterlik Air Base to target uh, ISIS. We need you to do some things on the border, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, I have to be honest, they did nothing. They would not let us fly out of Vinterlik Air Base. They would not let us do anything. Mm. The YPG was a group that was surrounded by ISIS. For, for a, those who don't know the terminology. The YPG what? is uh, a Syrian Kurdish group in northeast Syria. They were about to be slaughtered with a m bunch of Kurdish civilians at a little it, town on the border the of Turkey. Has there ever been an attack from Syria into Turkey from this group? The answer is no. And who made the decision, who made the decision to arm the YPG? It was actually President Trump, not President Obama. So there's a lot of history here that I want to make sure that we get absolutely right. But when ISIS was about to take this Kurdish town on the border uh, with Turkey, we made the decision to do what we could to help save this town. And frankly, at the time, Turkey was working with the YPG. As soon as the Kurds started taking these towns away from ISIS on the border, Turkey totally sealed their border. We said, why didn't you steal the border when ISIS was there? And flatbed trucks were coming across the border with ammonium nitrate and weapons and all sorts of things. So there's a lot of history here, but the argument that Turkey suddenly turned a switch because we worked with the YPG uh, is just simply not true. Barbara, could you, do, could you do us the favor of just a little education and take four sentences to explain to people who may not be completely familiar with the Turkish-Kurdish relationship what that's about? Because that's, <laughs> that's critical in the, the conversation. Yeah, that's it, it is. And, and, you know, the Kurds are the world's largest ethnic group without their own country. There are Kurds in Iran. There are Kurds in Iraq. There are Kurds in Syria. There are Kurds in Turkey. They are the largest ethnic minority in Turkey. And there have been uh, clashes, there have been guerrilla groups, there been, there's been terrorism. There was a peace process, though. One of the reasons Erdogan was initially so popular uh, was because he actually agreed to, to peace with the Kurds, and, uh, and then this peace agreement fell apart, and I'm still not really clear on whose fault that is. I think, I think that Erdogan got paranoid. He saw that Kurds were becoming more prominent. Uh, in Syria, he got worried, and, and there were incidents. The ceasefire broke, and then, uh, and then Erdogan got very, very okay. upset All about right. U.S. working with the Kurdish groups against ISIS. I don't want to go too deeply into the background, but I also want to add the fact, and Brett has alluded to it, that the Kurds have been our allies in, against ISIS. And, and some effective. of them have, and it has been very critical. But Bernard Haeckel, I want to take to you um, Brett's point that at critical moments, 
The Turks have not acted like allies. They haven't done the things allies do at, as requested, and that's a pretty serious charge and a pretty good definition of a bad ally. So can you take that response on? Well, look, I mean, Turkey is an independent country, and for instance, the first instance where they didn't do what the United States wanted them to do was to join in uh, in 2003 in the, in, the, in the war against Iraq. They, for, they, they forbade the United States from using Turkey as a launching uh, pad uh, for the Iraqi invasion. So, you know, the Turks have their own kind of independent and autonomous policy, and they don't always see eye to eye with us. Uh, on, on ISIS, they probably thought that the Kurds were more dangerous than, than, uh, than the Islamic State. That comes as a real shock to us as Americans. Right. But, you know, they have 20% the of their But the that they're dancing with Russia and they're dancing with China right now, who are our most existentially concerning uh, rivals out there. Does that not seem non-alliance-like? Yes, but I think one of the reasons they're doing that is because they don't feel that we have their back. Michael Duran. Back in 2015, the, uh, the Turks shot down a, a Russian airplane, and they looked to NATO to support them against the, against the Russians. And we treated it like a bilateral problem. We said, we hope that you Turks and you Russians sort out this problem. Russia was probing all along the NATO air, airspace, from the Baltics all the way down to the Balkans, even into, even into British airspace, the Russians were probing. We could have used this as an example to say that this, is un, that this is unacceptable. The Turks shot down a Russian over Turkish airspace at the time. That sent a very clear signal. It was, I'm not just talking about the one incident. I'm talking about the entire Syria conflict. Mm -hmm. We are the only country in the world that went in and said that the overwhelming priority, the, the, the number one priority of the United States is to destroy ISIS. We never went to the Turks and said, let's work together to build an order because we didn't like their answer. Let me bring in Ruel Mark Eric. Have you de-waffled on this? Or? I'm still sort of waffling. Uh, I mean, I would say that, I mean, it's a byproduct once again of the American retreat from the region. If uh, President Obama or President Trump had been willing to insert, say, three, 4,000 troops into Syria, I think the situation could have been different. We were not, so we played on a fault line in the Turkish uh, psychology. That's inevitable. I mean, Turkey actually does view itself as a much more fragile state than I think people in the West realize, and the primary fault line is a Kurdish one. Now, I might dissent a little bit on the way uh, Michael has described the YPG, uh, in, in Syria, but I, I think you have to accept the way the, the Turks look at it, and you can understand why they got deeply nervous. And I, I don't think, and also when the Turks look at the United States, as does everyone in the region now, they're saying, is the United States really gonna be there? I mean, NATO becomes a, a, a secondary issue for Turkey. Look, Are, look, we, NATO, what is NATO for? NATO is to counter Russia. The Iranians and the Russians moved into Iran, and uh, moved into Syria, the, the Iranians provided the ground troops, the Russians provided the air cover, and the Turks said, we don't like that. And the Obama administration said, sit down and shut up. One of the reasons we picked the YPG to fight ISIS is because the YPG has a history of good relations with Russia and Iran. It's not that they weren't gonna go deliver their weapons to Al-Qaeda and, uh, and to other jihadi groups. They promised us they wouldn't fight the Iranians and Assad. I think to back up a little bit too, in addition to Turkey being a fragile state with 20% of its population being Kurdish, so there's always a fear of secession. The other thing about the Turks is that they were always treated very badly by the Europeans. They wanted into the European Union. They were always treated like these dirty Muslims who didn't fit in and weren't really European. And then the Americans come and often treated them also as a kind of spare tire that can only be brought out and used whenever necessary. And I think that that you know, hurt, their, hurt, hurt their ego and hurt their sense of pride and honor. And we're seeing the consequences of this in the behavior of Erdogan. There's a romanticism about Turkey in Washington, because the Turkey of how it used to be, that Turkey's not there right now. I think we want to try to get it back. That requires some serious engagement, but also requires telling the truth when they're doing things that are totally against the interests of the United States and NATO. And that concludes debate on our third resolution. Thank you very much, everybody. On the first resolution, Trump is right on Saudi Arabia. Before the resolution, the vote was... 15% said yes, 
85% said no. Afterwards, the vote was 16% said yes, <laughs> and 84% said no. <laughs> so what I want to ask is, those, those of you who voted yes, could you just stand up for a moment so we can see you all? Okay. All right. On the second resolution, um, the, the world is safer without the JCPOA. Before, the vote was 17%, yes. 83% no, after the vote was 22% yes, 78% no, the swing went towards yes. Could just the yeses stand up on that one? Okay, on the third resolution, um, Turkey is an asset to NATO before the vote was 71% yes, 29% no, the vote after 60% yes, 40% no, the yeah. nose one on that one. Could the nose please stand up? <laughs> All right. The waffler doesn't get to take credit for that. <laughs> so um, the selection of this audience is entirely unscientific, but, <laughs> but, but we think it's interesting as a, as a rough measure of uh, whatever. I just want to say, I just want to say it's been a pleasure to launch our season with all of you here today, with Ben and with our five debaters. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. I'm John Donvan. This debate was recorded live at Symphony Space in New York City on September 12, 2019. Well, that's it. That is our debate, or our series of debates. Each of our panelists made his or her case. Our audience members cast their votes. But if you're still looking for more, we've got it. To date, I have hosted more than 160 of our debates on questions that remain timely. Some are still very much related to the episode you just heard. So if you want to keep listening, I recommend you scroll down through your podcast feed and check out debate number 132. And that one was on whether the U.S.-Saudi special relationship has outlived its usefulness. Or take a look at debate number 116 on how the United States should respond to the Syrian refugee crisis. Or just keep scrolling. There is a lot to find. Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Mathau is our chief content officer. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Aaron Dalton and Mary Dewey are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.